hppodcraft.com. I had not quite crossed the street when I heard a muttering band advancing along Washington from the north. As they reached the broad open space where I had had my first disquieting glimpse of the moonlit water, I could see them plainly only a block away, and was horrified by the bestial abnormality of their faces and the dog-like subhumanness of their crouching gait. One man moved in a positively simian way, with long arms frequently touching the ground, while another figure, robed and tiara'd, seemed to progress in an almost hopping fashion. I judged this party to be the one I had seen in the Gilman's courtyard, the one, therefore, most closely on my trail. As some of the figures turned to look in my direction, I was transfixed with fright, yet managed to preserve the casual shambling gait I had assumed. To this day, I do not know whether they saw me or not. If they did, my stratagem must have deceived them, for they passed on across the moonlit space without varying their course. Meanwhile, croaking and jabbering in some hateful, guttural patois I could not identify. That was a chapter from H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow of Innsmouth, and you are listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. I am one of your hosts, Chris Lackey, and with me is Chad Pfeiffer, and uh, we're joined by a guest once again for our, our final episode covering the show. Matt Parisi. Thanks for coming back, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. So this this section where he's running away from him and he's, he's basically pretending to be one of them, that becomes like a common horror trope, especially in zombie movies, where people pretend to be the monster so they can escape. Yeah, exactly. You see it in Shaun of the Dead. And it's a great technique. With some quick thinking on the on the part of Bobby O. Yeah, yeah man, exactly. Good idea. It's almost, it comes really natural to him for some reason as well. Yeah, and when he last <laughs> when we last we left, he'd escaped the Gilman and he'd gotten into the adjacent building. At this point, the story does fall into the kind of zombie archetype to an extent: the struggle of a man against a society of conformists. If one of the people in, that are conforming in the band sees you, it will call the others, and they'll all fall on you. And it's implied that they'll make you one of them. Thematically, it's a pretty interesting. Uh-huh. Thing. And I wonder, I mean, there, some of that must be at play, don't you think, with Lovecraft? You go into this town and they're going to make you like them. It's a fear. Anyway, before we uh, get too far into discussing it, anything we need to get out of the way before we... Uh, we, we well, yes, we do. We, we are still doing our fundraiser for uh, The Call of Cthulhu reading by Andrew Lehman. That's who we heard uh, reading that opening paragraph yes, once again yes, joining indeed. us. Thank you, Andrew. We are trying to get all three parts of Call of Cthulhu read by him, and the music will be done by uh, Reber Clark, who that's right, whose music we used for our show when we covered The Call of Cthulhu. And he even provided, he just sent me the other day, a new uh, some new music to use in the reading when we put it out. Oh, great. So it'll have some original stuff that you haven't heard before as well. Oh, I love this stuff. So, yeah, it's going to be pretty cool. A uh, reminder that I, I've got my book up on Amazon, Children in Heat. If anybody wants to pick up, it's a quick read. Put a link in the show notes. Everybody should read it. That's all I think that we have, right? That's it. That's all we're pushing. Okay. Because I'm excited. This is the greatest part of the greatest Lovecraft story. I'm, I'm, I'm loving talking about this stuff. So Our first episode, you asked me if this was, um, you said this was your favorite Lovecraft story. And I said, well, I'm not really sure if it is. <sighs> Man, I think I might be sold after we've been talking about it and getting into it. I think this actually might be my favorite Lovecraft story. All the time, people will say, what's a good one to introduce Lovecraft to, yeah. to somebody? I'd say this story right here. If they have the time. I mean, there's shorter ones. You could give them from beyond or something so they can get the flavor. Yeah. But, man, this is the good stuff. Yeah, it's really good. This was the story that got me into Lovecraft because you gave me this book and I read this story. And this story got me into Lovecraft. This in the temple. There you go. Testimonials. Testimonials. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
Well, when we heard that opening paragraph, though, we were cutting ahead a little bit. There's a section we kind of skipped over that's pretty tense where he makes you feel every little jog that the protagonist is going through because essentially there's people all over the streets. There's sounds of an organized pursuit of some kind. And his southward exit that he was going to take is cut off. Yeah. So he's got to kind of improvise a way out of the town. And, and at one point he has to cross this wide open square. As he does, he spies Devil Reef out there in the water, which in and of itself bugs him just seeing the island. But even worse is he sees that in the water between the reef and the shore, there are some shapes swimming inward. Yes. There's something coming from the island. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not just the dudes that were in the hotel. It's not just the people on the street. A teeming horde is coming from the ocean as well, right. which is terrible. <laughs> but they're, ter- they're, they're apparently not very good at tracking because they, our, our narrator is able to elude them to a large extent. Yeah, he is. I wonder if it's, uh, you know, underwater, so they smell really well, but once they get up here on land, their senses are a little screwed up. <laughs> they don't have, they're not going to be able, like, hearing and sight and, and smell and all these things we would use to track. doesn't work. That would, that would line up with most Lovecraftian monsters, you know? They, they're not in their originating realm, and so they're kind of helpless to an extent. Because these guys, it's not like they're, they're running around chasing them. They're all shambling and dragging legs around and kind of, yeah. you know what I mean? I, I, visually, I just imagine that everybody's kind of coming along and not walking real well. And it's that right, zombie exactly. kind of thing. They're in ill repair. Well, they, uh, well, yeah, they're just not suited for, for land activity. You know, I'm in the yeah. water, I'm sure they totally kick ass, but here... Yeah. Some of them are hopping. It's like you were saying, Chad, it's very similar to uh, the Mego in Whisper in Darkness, where they're not from Earth, so they've got they're, they're kind of at a disadvantage. But somehow they still they still project a horrible, horrible menace. It's terrifying to, to oh, yeah. for these things to be after you. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's well, sheer numbers as well. I mean, a whole town of of you know five year olds that want to kill me is scary. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter how advantaged or disadvantaged they are when you've got numbers on 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 their side. Is that something that is either happened to you, Chris, or do you just <laughs> spend time worrying about it? No, I mean, have you ever had that? I'm sure I've asked you or, or Barisi. I mean, you know, in a fight, how many five-year-olds do you think you could take? <laughs> you actually never asked me that question. I've never, I've never asked you that? I could have sworn I've asked you that one, Matt. If there were children that were bent on killing you, you know, not just mm-hmm. actual five-year-old children, but, you know, maybe they're possessed with some kind of supernatural evil, how mm-hmm. many could you take down? I mean, they're five, they're little, and they're not right. very strong, but if you get... Three or four of them, you know, they'll bring you down. Yeah, I think I could do better than three or four. Really? Yeah, I could take out four or five year olds. <laughs> well, look, there's there's only one way to settle this debate. I'm gonna, I'll see you guys later. Wait, <laughs> I'm going down to the grade school. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. T- you're talking about not real five year olds because real five year olds would be scared of you and they would run away. I'm talking, you okay. know, five year olds that would be hell bent for leather. Ready to destroy you. Right. Children yeah. of the corn type children. Exactly. Like children of the corn children where they're homicidal. They, would, they wouldn't be scared of me. No. They would, I mean, they would try and fight you. and you. A, a punch from you would definitely really severely injure a five-year-old kid. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how crazy that five-year-old kid is. However, you're not going to yeah. get too many good punches in because you'll just get swarmed. Yeah. Faster than you, actually. Well, I was just about to say, I think I would just outrun them. I don't know if you could outrun a little kid. I mean, honestly, like, you're going to you're gonna get winded much quicker than they are. Mm. You especially. What, what are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> Five, when's the last time you've been to the gym? <laughs> <laughs> little kids, they're out exercising every day. They're crazy. 
That's true. With their yeah. sinister little juice boxes and their furtive <laughs> ways of. <laughs> you could, however, outsmart the children. Well, that yeah, I guess so. But I don't know if I could because as we're having this discussion, I'm like starting to get more and more hopeless in this scenario. <laughs> but my point is, bringing it back to the story, even if they're <laughs> even if they are disadvantaged, they still have numbers and they're organized. And they ha- they have fear on their. I mean, anybody who accosts me in the street, I don't know what their intentions are. That's the worst feeling. What do they want from him? Yeah. What are they going to do if they get him? I don't know. They're not looking to settle up that $1 hotel bill. <laughs> <laughs> that, but that's what's cool about the story. You know, if they were going to kill, maybe they're going to kill him. Maybe they're going to sacrifice him to some deep ones. Maybe mm-hmm. they're going to try and make sweet love to him. Who knows? But it, it, it's obviously, you would think if they were going to kill him, they could have just done it earlier or easier. You know, nobody else is in the hotel. They could have just had a guy waiting in the hallway yeah to to jump it's true yeah they they have plans for this guy there's something coordinated about him that they want to get that they want to get their hands on it for some reason this must be how the beatles felt in hard days Night. (laughs) (laughs) he's heading out to the rails right that's his new plan that he kind of says you know what there is an old rail yard i think nobody will patrol that so it's covered i think i can make it there and that's going to be my exit out of town he he does get to the rails and he has to kind of follow it and he can hear the pursuit. You know, it's sort of all around him. I think there's this long covered bridge he has to cross. I think, you know, isn't it? He goes in and all these bats fly out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this is the same bridge that when he came into town in, right? Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's really creepy. Those bridges are, are, are scary, the covered ones, just because you're trapped. You really, once you go in, there's only two ways out. Mm-hmm. Either keep going through that bridge or go back the way you came. And, and it's, oh, they're creepy. <laughs> yeah, there's a covered bridge in the Dunwich Horror, too. I think it really works well as a gateway into the the supernatural realm sort of right the, the, yeah. the threshold that they have to cross um, exactly well so as he makes his his way he sees something to the south it looks like a moving column of things on the ipswich road and there are way too many of them Innsmouth is only supposed to have about two or three hundred folks in it in, yeah, t- in the entire town yeah suddenly there's all these folks out so these these are the people that have been hiding in those shelled out houses yeah i mean thousands it, it, there's a lot, there's a lot more of a population in Innsmouth than people know. Right, he described an undulating column. That's how he describes it. It's just yeah. terror. It's like a giant snake almost. Like it's just mm-hmm. horrifying. He has to basically hide once he sees this column and just wait for them to pass. Mm-hmm. And and he knows that they're approaching. So he kind of gets down in the what is it? There's just some shrubbery or something like that yeah. that he kind of crouches by the, down by the train tracks. Yeah, he just kind of gets yeah. in and, and huckers down and, and hides. And there's a moonlit passage that he can see, and he knows that when they pass through it, he will see them, and he doesn't want to see them. But of course, he can't help but look. But I must try to tell what I thought I saw that night under the mocking yellow moon. Saw surging and hopping down the Rowley Road in plain sight in front of me as I crouched among the wild brambles of that desolate railway cut. Of course, my resolution to keep my eyes shut had failed. It was foredoomed to failure. For who could crouch blindly while a legion of croaking, baying entities of unknown source flopped noisomely past, scarcely more than a hundred yards away? I saw them in a limitless stream, flopping, hopping, croaking, bleating, surging inhumanly through the spectral moonlight in a grotesque, malignant saraband of fantastic nightmare. And some of them had tall tiaras of that nameless whitish gold metal, and some were strangely robed, and one who led the way 
was clad in a ghoulishly humped black coat and striped trousers, and had a man's felt hat perched on the shapeless thing that answered for a head. I think their predominant color was a grayish green, though they had white bellies. They were mostly shiny and slippery, but the ridges of their backs were scaly. Their forms vaguely suggested the anthropoid, while their heads were the heads of fish with prodigious bulging eyes that never closed. At the sides of their necks were palpitating gills and their long paws were webbed. They hopped irregularly, sometimes on two legs and sometimes on four. I was somehow glad that they had no more than four limbs. Their croaking, baying voices, clearly used for articulate speech, held all the dark shades of expression which their staring faces lacked. But for all of their monstrousness, they were not unfamiliar to me. I knew too well what they must be, for was not the memory of that evil tiara at Newburyport still fresh? They were the blasphemous fish frogs of the nameless design, living and horrible. And as I saw them, I knew also of what that humped tiarid priest in the black church basement had so fearsomely reminded me. Their number was past guessing. It seemed to me that there were limitless swarms of them, and certainly my momentary glimpse could have shown only the least fraction. In another instant, everything was blotted out by a merciful fit of fainting. The first... I had ever had. I think the most horrible part of that is the guy in the in the hat. For some yeah. reason, <laughs> yeah. Well, I assume that's uh, that's old man Marsh. Right? Old man Marsh. Yeah, I don't know why it's so terrifying to me that he's he's still wearing human clothes. Did that strike you as especially terrifying? Yeah. Well, because I, for me, it really stuck out because it really points out that they used to be human or that they are human in a way. If it was just a fish man, I kind of don't think of it as being an intelligence or somebody that makes those kind of... It, it seems way more human to me that it's and pathetic in a way that it's pretending to be human or still holding on to some of these, these human mm-hmm. uh, trappings like clothes. I think it goes to what Matt has been saying the whole time that one of the things about this that's so chilling is that it's an imitation of, of humanity. Right. It's an imitation of normal life. And imitations are very unsettling. Any Anybody trying to pretend to be... You know, it's kind of like when you... The Uncanny Valley, you know, when you see a movie and there's a computer animated person in it, you know they're not a person. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you see the Polar Express, it doesn't... It fills me with some kind of worry or there's something hideous behind it because you just... It, it's it's not a good thing. It's It feels like you're trying to be... They're trying to trick you into mm-hmm. thinking it's a real thing and 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 it's not it's it's a tr- it's an evil thing that's pretending to be human and those in grasping to that human life you know still holding on to some aspect of it it's seeing the humanity in the monster as well that makes you, it, as you were saying chris it's just yeah. bothersome it's so good and that ends the the fourth chapter with the typical lovecraft faint yes fainting <laughs> i know he says that when he says uh, a merciful fit of fainting the first i have ever had well this character but not lovecraft no <laughs> <laughs> this must be, uh, if there's a board somewhere, I think we finally hit the millionth faint. He wakes up in a gentle daylight rain. Pretty lucky that he passed out in a place where nobody could see him. Yeah. And he wakes up as if from a drunken fantasy. <laughs> there it is again. <laughs> well, it's past noon when he wakes up, so he had a really good nap there. Yeah. He was out for a long time. And the rain especially, it would probably wake, wake me up a lot earlier, but maybe he's just, you know, tired. Well, his mind got blown. Yeah, or he's just, or he's just tired. 
suddenly not as interested in his architectural tour. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Push to the way. No. He does make it to Rowley. He gets out of there. He takes a train to Arkham where he can kind of, you know, he gets himself together and he starts telling the authorities what's up. And I love that. This isn't something that he keeps to himself. No. And this is kind of the first time that in the Lovecraft sto- stories that that this is what happens. He Usually they just can't deal with it and then they go on with their life or they, you know, they die or they go insane or whatever. But this guy goes to the authorities and they don't really believe him sort of at first, but he convinces them. They check it out and then things, you know, it it reveals things. Yeah, and it works. I mean, this is not the horror trope of the unhelpful policeman, which is in the policemen are always unhelpful in horror stories and horror movies. They just don't believe the protagonist or whatever. But here... He tells him in Arkham. He tells him in Boston. They go, okay, we're going to go check this out. They go, they say, these people are crazy and there's some monsters down in the ocean. So <laughs> get, some, get some torpedoes ready. Yeah, they reach, they reach absolutely reasonable conclusions. Yeah. Yep. They say, well, that sounds like a crazy story, but let's go look. And then they look and they go, yep, that story's true. Let's take care of it. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's wonderful that that happened. But as you said, it kind of ruins his vacation, this whole experience. <laughs> and so uh, when he was in Arkham, he did have an opportunity to grab some genealogical notes and although it it seems the story's over there's a little more to learn here Mm -hmm. it seems that his uncle had been in Innsmouth before doing the same research Mm -hmm. and had uncovered a similar thing which is that his grandmother's father Benjamin Orne had married somebody odd just after the Civil War a woman named Marsh who didn't have any recorded family and herself had an early death which is kind of a strange thing that there's a marsh in his family yep so that's the last that's the conclusion of his genealogical tour he got some pretty bad genealogical info there he goes home to toledo that's the first time i realized that he was a midwestern is at that point in the story he's from ohio right a year later uh he's recuperated from this whole adventure and he has to go spend some time with his mother's family in cleveland he's never really liked hanging out with that family right Mm-hmm. His his grandmother had disappeared when he was eight. She just kind of wandered off after the suicide of his uncle, the one who'd also done the same trip as him to New England. It basically, he made that trip and then shot himself. If you look at this story against Arthur German, it's got a similar conclusion where the protagonist finds out something terrible about his bloodlines. In Arthur German, he sets himself on fire. Right. We kind of have that with his uncle as well. His uncle finds out, yeah. finds out his origins and kills himself. But our protagonist doesn't go that way. Right, which I think is a pretty interesting... It's neat that he says, well, here's one way we could go, but this time we're going to go a different way with it. What if he em- embraces it or or starts to understand it? This is, one, I think, one of the great endings in horror literature because because that happens, because he, he starts to have these dreams where he starts to see the cities, and then he starts to... He's swimming. Yeah, yeah he's swimming. He starts to physically change. Yeah, and then he has a dream that he meets his grandmother. Now, his grandmother had wandered off when he was eight. Nobody knows what happened to her. I thought that was curious because it was... It was I think it was Lovecraft was eight when his father died. Yeah. In one of those dreams he has of swimming in the water, he meets his grandmother in the sea. She's like in some palace with an underwater garden. And what it made me think of those sea monkey ads. That he's, you know, <laughs> there's yeah. The nuclear family floating around and they're kind of 1950s bliss. One of the things that makes it so disturbing to me is that as he's telling the story, he's relating it in such a matter of fact way. All this creepy stuff at the bottom of the sea. He's just like, oh, yeah, then lived in Yafiafia or whatever. I can't even pronounce these names. Oh, I know. And, tells you all about how the deep ones could not be destroyed and all this stuff and then it all seems rather like logical like of course this is the course he would take yeah there's a little bit of horror because while he's doing research on his mother's family and when he'd gone out to cleveland to visit them his 
brother takes him to the safe deposit box where the family jewelry is kept, or is this another mm-hmm. uncle? It's another uncle or something. He's going to go check out the family jewelry, and when he looks at it, it's a tiara and some other things that are just like that yeah. tiara in Newburyport. And when he sees that, he faints again, I think. But that is the uh, that's the hor- that's as far as he goes with the horror. And then after that, he kind of realizes, hey, I'm descended from these people. He's in a bit of denial, but you're right, man. He gets a very matter of fact. He gets an insurance job and continues to try you know, living a human life, but he knows he's having those dreams. And it finally concludes, So far I have not shot myself as my Uncle Douglas did. I bought an automatic and almost took the step, but certain dreams deterred me. The tense extremes of horror are lessening, and I feel queerly drawn toward the unknown sea deeps instead of fearing them. I hear and do strange things in sleep, and awake with a kind of exaltation instead of terror. I do not believe I need to wait for the full change, as most have waited. If I did, my father would probably shut me up in a sanitarium as my poor little cousin is shut up. Stupendous and unheard-of splendors await me below, and I shall seek them soon. Ia, Relay. Cthulhu Fatagn. Ia, Ia. No, I shall not shoot myself. I cannot be made to shoot myself. I shall plan my cousin's escape from that Canton madhouse, and together we shall go to marvel-shadowed Innsmouth. We shall swim out to that brooding reef in the sea and dive down through black abysses to Cyclopean and many-columned Yohannath Lay. And in that lair of the Deep Ones, we shall dwell amidst wonder and glory forever. It's a happy ending. In my mind, that is a happy ending. <laughs> Under the sea. <laughs> it's it's happy for him. Probably not yeah. so happy for humanity. No. <laughs> Implications are pretty bad. Yeah, well, that's the end of the story. But the way that we just heard Andrew read it, I mean, I do think it's, it's an emotional, it's a wondrous... You have to have some kind of mixed emotions about this because, in a sense... He goes to heaven. It really feels like, I mean, because he, see, he sees his, his dead grandmother there, mm-hmm. you know, and he's welcomed in and he feels, you know, that he belongs and he's going to live there in this beautiful place forever. And it's totally, uh, you know, like a heaven myth. Yeah. With the dwell amidst wonder and glory and see all your loved ones and never die and, and never have illness. It sounds good to me. And destroy humanity. <laughs> right. and, and I thought what, one of the things that's really cool here, too, is that it makes you think that his whole visit to Innsmouth was sort of like an amphibious biological impulse to, like, return to where you were spawned, kind of. It's just so creepy. Yeah. Oh, good call. Because yeah. he does, yeah, no matter what, he probably would have found himself there somehow. He got the call. I also like his plan to, uh, to bust out his cousin. From the madhouse. Yeah, which also kind of shows sympathy on for this character, you know, that he realizes that somebody else is being unjustly imprisoned and he's going to go free him. So there's this whole other prison break story. <laughs> I want to hear that story. How does he break <laughs> him out, you know? Yeah, he goes in there, like, with some cheap disguise, glub, glub, glub. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime there's a monster with a disguise, I love it. <laughs> Guy with gills and a mustache. Some people say that within this story, there are themes of racism and and worries about polluting your bloodline and that kind of thing. 
and that Lovecraft had kind of slipped back into his earlier position. He's concerned about polluting his Anglo-Saxon bloodline, etc. Do you think that's true, or, or does this show some kind of... Because the protagonist accepts who he is at the end. He accepts what he is. He embraces it. Well, it could be even more racist in saying that what it is is you've got to be careful of people. If you find out you're one, you're going to accept it, and that's bad. That's an, and Because these guys are definitely evil. They're doing evil things, and so... Beware of people that think that it's okay because they might be part of this conspiracy. Okay, but hold on. Are they doing evil things? The Deep Ones are doing terrible things. They've, they've killed all these people on the island. They've killed the people of Innsmouth. They've raped all these human beings. They're going to they're gonna destroy humanity eventually. Aren't, isn't that terrible? They're taking human sacrifices. When, when are you going to get to the bad part? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. Yeah, I guess they do take human sacrifices. But who knows what they're doing? Maybe sending those people off on vacations. Probably not. What, what, what's your take? Think that it he might not be as racist? You think that this is sort of a, a, a maturing of it? or? Yeah, it's impossible for me to know, but it does seem that, um, look, the guy doesn't set himself on fire because he finds this out. He embraces it, and that notion in and of itself shows a kind of evolution of thought that I didn't find present. I think it's a much in, more interesting story. And, of course, you can never really be inside somebody's head, especially somebody that has been dead for 80 right. years. To me, it doesn't say that he has advanced his views on racism and things like that. It's just, I feel like he's a better writer. I got you. I mean, certainly he's disgusted by these people. All of his descriptions of these of the Deep Ones and the hybrids are, are not complimentary in any way. Right, but, you know, when we talk about the themes of the subtext of the racism and stuff, this is a little bit different in the sense that, I mean, th- this is an alien species. I mean, this is not a... You know, I know that there's a subtext there, but this is a horrible alien species that we're talking about interbreeding with people. I mean, it's it's just yeah. it's just a different thing. Yeah, and well, it's true, it's true. There's all different kinds of ways to look at it. You know, there's something that the Deep Ones do here where sort of an interesting, almost imperial kind of technique they have where they meet the natives and they give them some trinkets and some gold and, you know, kind of get them on their side and then slowly they take over things and then now the Deep Ones live there. You know what I mean? Like... Yeah. They, they're a conquering race, but they don't do it by just coming up and, well, they do it that once. But, I mean, in general, they kind of use coercion, even intimidation to an extent, instead of just brute force, which they eschew. And also, the, what what the hell's going on with the Shoggoths? Why why do they have them? I mean, the the Elder Things use the Shoggoths as sort of a slave race to, to mm-hmm. do their bidding and build their buildings. And are the Deep Ones using Shoggoths as well? Are they just using them to, to build things? Are they trying to make some kind of new life form that will destroy humanity or... But you guys keep saying destroy humanity, and is that their plan? I don't know. We don't know what their plan is because they keep making reference to the fact that they could wipe people out anytime they want to, but they don't. But they don't. So I feel like there's something else they're trying to do, and I don't know what that is. And that's great. I love that. they. And from, from a storytelling, I don't want to know because I'm sure it would be lame, whatever the explanation is. It, Lovecraft does this really good job of painting all around something and giving you this negative shape. And this negative shape hints at something that's horrible. You don't know what, what's in there, but you can kind of see that outline of it. And it, mm-hmm. it's, it's terrifying. It's so good. And that's, and that's the best way to do it. Yeah. yeah. And, it's, and it just feels like something that Lovecraft, that's what he excels at, is doing that, that type of thing. And, and, and it's really displayed in the story yeah i feel like this uh, what's the next story you guys are covering after this uh as i had mentioned last week we're going to do a little wrap-up on Innsmouth. we're going to have a couple of guests robert m price is going to come on and speak to us for a bit and we're also going to talk to our, our pal donovan who is uh, who runs 
hplovecraft.com website that we use as a resource constantly on the show and who also is somewhat of an expert in Lovecraftian uh, geography and architecture. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to talk to him. So we're going to cover some of that stuff uh, next week. Then after that, we're getting on to our next story, which I believe is another collaboration, isn't it? It's a collaboration with Harry S. Whitehead, and it's called The Trap which I have never read, so I'm looking forward to, to jumping into this story. Yeah, I don't know much about it, but I'll tell you that after we do that one-off, we're getting into the Dreams in the Witch House. So that's yes. the next big one. So after the trap, then we got followed up with the Dreams in the Witch House. I believe we're going to have Ken Height with us for that one, yeah? Yes, Ken Height will be with That'd us be cool. in, in that. Story. But that's getting off track. Why did you ask that, Matt? Just because I felt like this story is sort of, it feels like the zenith. It feels like the absolute culmination, because he's got the Dreams in there, he's got the Lost City, he's got Cthulhu in there, he's got this the Shoggoths in there. Everything is coming together in this story, it feels like to me. I completely agree. Yeah. The thematic things that he's covered before are here. Yeah, you're right. Everything from his mythology is there. It's a horror story. It's uh, It's got a science fiction element to it. It's great. And it really is. I think it's the apex of his work. We're going to talk more about the origins of the story probably when we talk to Robert next week. But yeah. I know that this was notably inspired by a Robert Chambers story. Yeah. Um, he of uh, the King in Yellow fame. Uh, he wrote a story called The Harbor Master, which mm-hmm. is about amphibious human beings living in a deep chasm in the sea. I know that that was particularly influential on this. Also, an Irvin Cobb story called Fishhead. <laughs> yeah. Which is uh, not the song Really Pulley Fishheads, but it was a story called Fishhead that uh, Lovecraft really liked. And uh, we can talk about some more of that next week. But there are some literary sources that this came from. He, yeah. he wasn't the first to come up with this whole human fish hybrid thing. But we'll we'll talk. I think that's something we'll probably definitely talk about with Robert. Absolutely love this story, and I'm I'm so I had so much fun going over it and really digging deep into it. Uh, it's one of the joys of doing the show is that I learned so much more about the material, and I think that I, you know I liked something before, and then by the end of us our discussion, I just love it. Indeed. Well, it's been really fun talking with you guys about this. It it's, remains even under the light of analysis still my favorite Lovecraft piece. Yeah. I, I hope that um, if folks haven't read it, they will. Yeah, and, read it. And, and certainly pass it on to others. And I think that's all we're going to have on the actual coverage of the story uh, until we're back next week t- discussing it with those guys. So yep. uh, we're going to outro once again with a piece of music. This is from the upcoming album Live at the Gilman House featuring Ogham Waits and the Amphibian Jazz Band. It's a collection of jazz standards with an Innsmouth bent that will be released soon by the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. There are more details on their site cthulives.org and the track we'll be playing is called Some Wonderland Overseas. Hope you all enjoy that and pick up the record. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for for being here with us and and talking it over. I think you've had a lot of great insights and uh, also you're just a funny dude. Thanks for having me. Also want to thank uh, Brooke Burgess, uh, our intern uh, for some great notes and and helping us uh, with the site and getting things organized and she's amazing as well as Mike Mann, web guru, all-around kick-ass guy. Yeah, and uh, Andrew Lehman for doing our readings. And uh, that's all we got. So thanks a lot, everybody. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Matt Barisi. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. Yeah. There's a story saying God is kind. Foolish mortals hold so their faith is blind In a useless crucified consumptive veil Enshrined Obed Marsh, he thought he could beat those odds So he sailed his yacht seeking better guides 
found an island where they worshipped self-lopards. Mars sailed home with exotic gold beyond belief. Fish now team in abundance round devil. Now we all bend the knee Hoping that we one day will see Someone to land overseas Join the esoteric order and swear We won't despair, soon we will share some wonder land overseas. Although we know we're not a clan, people think of as handsome, is <laughs> deep one. That we must appease. <laughs> Dagon calls to us, and we must obey so we can play in Yahan the flame. Someone to land overseas. Thank you. 